And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Welcome to the Grandland Network. My name is Andy Greenwald. It's a great day here in our New York studio because I am joined by the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, Axel Alonso. Welcome, Axel. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Very happy to have you here. As I was confessing to you before we started, I am a longtime uh, out and proud comics fan, especially Marvel Comics. And I'm particularly interested in speaking to you now as Marvel is about to relaunch its entire universe, more or less, as the all-new, all-different Marvel. Uh, We're also talking right in front of the New York Comic Con, so I imagine you guys have a lot of events coming up. Um, You brought some comics, which is nice, and I will try not to pick them up and (laughs) and read them while we're talking. But before we get into everything I just alluded to, all-new, all-different stuff... I want to ask you specifically, you are editor-in-chief of Marvel. Yes, I am. Stan Lee's job. Exactly, Stan Lee's job. And so the first question is kind of basic, because for some people, like me, the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics is a legendary position. This is like like, uh, Odin and Asgard, basically. That's a very nerdy Marvel reference, or Norse reference, to be honest. (laughs) Um, Where I picture you sort of just, you know, hanging out with talent and handing out no prizes and responding to every letter in the letters page. But there's probably a great swath of the audience that has no idea what the editor-in-chief of a major comic book company does. So if you could fill us in, that would be a great start. Sure. Well, let me start by saying it is not what you described. Not at all. At all. Okay. No, no. Uh, it's the best job in the world. Um, full disclosure, I, I never, ever dreamed of having this job. I never dreamed of having a job in comics, nor did I aspire or educate myself in that pursuit. Um, I landed here, and I feel like I was born for this moment. Wow. Um, I love it. My job is I supervise a staff of editors, about 18 to 20 editors. Uh, who in turn supervise and work with the writers and artists from around the world uh, to tell these comic book stories. Um, You know, we're modern mythology. These are stories that have uh, started uh, since well before I was born and you were born. Um, And we're sort of entrusted with making sure that those characters stay true to who they are and remain the aspirational, cool, kick-ass characters that, you know, generations have loved. So... Do you actually get in – are you in the trenches with creative teams and arcs building things? Or are you, at this point, as editor-in-chief, really shaping the long-term vision of the company? Are you taking these disparate parts and helping guide them into a larger whole? My role is mostly macro in terms of taking a look at the whole Marvel Universe, how all these characters' lives intersect against mm-hmm. the tapestry that is the Marvel Universe. But there are occasions when I do roll up my sleeves and get involved in launches. Um, I'll make um, – strong recommendations about casting decisions. Um, as I've told a when lot of... When you say of, casting decisions, you mean in terms of like staffing the books? Exactly. Writers and artists and stuff right. like You're that. You're not saying, forget Renner, I'm sick of him. And, <laughs> not, not like that. <laughs> That's not your thing. No, no, no. And I also tell people, too, with launches that um, I'm going to be a pain in the ass in the beginning. You're going to get sick of me. And after issue one, you won't even see me anymore. And I try and stay true to that. So I'm not micromanaging. I've got a great staff of editors, very capable editors, uh, starting with my SVP for publishing, Tom Brevoort who is a walking encyclopedia of knowledge in comics. He has forgotten more about comics than you or I will ever learn. The thing about this guy, and I I know him again just from from paying attention to comics for a long time, is I can't imagine anyone doing this job without that person. Because you read a lot of comics. You've been working in the industry for a long time. You probably know where certain minor characters were left or whether they're alive or dead or, you know, Scarlet Witch's marital status or whatever. But you don't know all. You can't know no. all of it. But you have a guy that does, right? We pretty much do. I mean, you could literally say, you know, um, what happened in, you know, Spider-Man number 131, page 17, panel 4, and he'll <laughs> tell you. It's it's that bad. That's yeah. terrifying. But also probably a great relief for you. Um, tell me a little bit more about how you – you said you, you weren't prepared. You didn't 
plan to be in this industry. How did you end up here? Because I remember, um, I think you're a native New Yorker. Um, I actually or, was born in San Francisco. Oh, okay. So, yes. mm-hmm. But you get credit for being here for a long time. I've right? been here for half my life. So, okay, yeah, so that exactly. Um, and I believe I remember seeing your name first when you were at DC or Vertigo. Is that right? Yes. Before jumping to Marvel. Yes. I mean, long story short, I was a journalist uh, for a few years. Um, and... Uh, I was realizing that I was making very little money for stuff I liked to write mm-hmm. and a lot of money for stuff I didn't. So I was pondering a career change. That sounds like journalism to You me. know the deal. <laughs> I, I, sent a, I saw an ad in the New York Times that uh, DC Comics and Vertigo Imprint were hiring editors. Um, I'd begun to read some of the early Vertigo books. I sent in my resume. I got a call back from an editor, Lustathis, um, the late Lustathis, who called me in simply because he read an article I'd written uh, for one of the local newspapers. Um, and let's just say that in the article, um, one of the one of the people I'd interviewed had uh, come across as being a bit of a jackass through his own quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lou loved this because this guy had in fact stolen Lou's girlfriend. Oh, so he uh, he put two and two together. He wow. ripped the article out of a, a magazine, and uh, he remembered my name because oh. I've got an uncommon name, and called me in. We talked about the article for about fifteen minutes, and he offered me the job. And quite frankly, I wasn't convinced I wanted the job. But I took the job, and there we are. That's amazing. They say all politics is local, but I guess all employment is even more local. Apparently. It was meant to be. It, it, was, it was luck and, and opportunity. But that is interesting because there, there are many people who have been able to do both. But in general, people who begin as writers, that, that skill set and you know, the, what you bring to, to bear on that profession is not necessarily the same as what an editor does, particularly in your field where you need to – micromanage and also shape and support and play therapist and uh, high school soccer coach and do all these different things to get the best work out of other creative people. Yeah, it's a learned skill set, and it's one that you acquire over time. It's a very specific skill set because you need, as an editor, you need to be able to understand uh, story structure, of course, uh, but also you have to understand um, how art serves that. So over time, right. you need to be able to develop your storytelling skills um, to know how to um, uh, what when an art is is working in service of the story or, or at at cross purposes with it. It's like being a cinematographer. Right. You have to develop your visual sensibilities. As Absolutely. Well. Was that an easy adjustment for you? Did you often already think that way or was that a process? As arrogant as it sounds, I thought it was easy. I had some background in art. I, I was a. Uh, uh, I drew a lot when I was a young man until I discovered girls in basketball and gave it up. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had one year in art school before I realized that first generation Mexican-American immigrants don't go to art school. They get a more practical education. I see. Hence the BA in politics and sociology. When you, you say know. you realized that, was that realized for you? Or oh, you- I realized it in a class where I thought, oh, my God. If this doesn't work out, I'm yeah. going to fall so far. I'll be managing the 7-Eleven my dad promised me I would. So, I see. Okay. If I didn't get A's, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that training uh, combined with, you know, um, what experience I had as a journalist maybe helped me uh, get a leg up in that regard. So you mo- made the move to Marvel um, at a very interesting time for the company. You were, I don't know if you were the first or one of the first hires that I believe Joe Casada made when he took over um, in, was it 2000? 2000, yeah. Um now, a, a good friend of mine, Sean Howe, wrote a book about the history of Marvel Comics recently. And in that book, uh, he definitely portrays a company that is responsible for some of the greatest creative creations of our time, but also was fraught by mismanagement at different periods in its existence. Uh, I won't ask you to comment on that, sure. just to say that I think you'd probably agree it was a little chaotic at times. Well, it was understandably volatile. Volatile you is know, a better word. The, the, the fact of the matter is when, when the publisher at the time, Bill Jemis, came to me 
and offered me a job at Marvel, I turned him flat down. I wow. had no interest in going. And um, for a lot of different reasons, reasons too, too numerous to, to, to point out. Um, but he, he kept coming back to me and he, he asked me all the right questions. And eventually he told me that Joe Quesada was going to become the new editor-in-chief. And once I found out that Joe was the new editor-in-chief, it, it influenced my decision greatly. Yeah. I, I, I knew Joe. Uh, he was a little bit of a rival. Um, I, I thought he had extremely good taste because he was stealing my talent. Yes, aggressively. <laughs> aggressively. And uh, so I both uh, hated him and, uh, and, and, and respected him at the same time. And I just saw an opportunity there. Absolutely. I would, um, because I, you know, I generally write about TV, I would use an analogy to the business that I cover, which is to say that in TV, the best work of the last 10 or 15 years has come from places that had literally nothing to lose. You know, you look at a channel like AMC that had no identity, and they took a chance on these scripts with the most talented people and the most out there ideas. That period, the Casada Gemis period, to me, is really um, defined by that, where Marvel was in a, I would say, in a bad spot, and at least in terms of the fan community in the larger world, and you had the opportunity to say, okay, let's start Spider-Man over with, with uh, Brian Michael Bendis and Ultimate Spider-Man. Let's, let's give Grant Morrison the X-Men and see what happens. And the, some of the work that came out of that, it got me back into comics after a long period away because it felt exhilarating, that opportunity to just see, look at these toys are coming off the shelf and into these people's hands. Uh, you're not the first person to tell me that. Uh, I think that you're right. Um, you know, we, we were the Wild West back then. Um, we could take a lot of chances. Uh, I know that you know, Bill encouraged me to swing for the fences, and uh, there are many occasions when um, we got a, a lot of attention for it. I know that, you know, uh, Robert Morales and Kyle Baker's Truth, the first Black yep. Captain America, came out during that period. Uh, Ron Zimmerman and John Severin's Rawhide Kid mm-hmm. uh, came out during that time, which reimagined Shane as, uh, as the gay cowboy who rode into town and saved the day and rode off into the sunset. Um, you know, really played with... Uh, definitions of that 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 paradigm yeah you know? and the captain america story you mentioned is really incredible and i think it's been woven into the fabric of the universe Absolutely. in a really interesting way but it was so the idea was that of course they wouldn't they i mean a fictional people sure. but the, the u.s government at that time would be unlikely to experiment on a white soldier first so they experiment I mean, you know in, in line of the tuskegee airmen they experimented on a black soldier so there was a captain america before steve rogers that was the, the plot of the story yeah the story was rooted in history and, yeah and, and you know there was insp- inspiration came from a lot of different places Another book we did was the hostile takeover of the X-Men paradigm called X-Force by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred. And mm-hmm. Basically, Peter oh, God, and I, I went out. We, Peter and I went out one night and I said, Peter, would you like to write an X-Men book? And he said, absolutely not. So uh, we just kept drinking. And I <laughs> and I said, look, let's just let's do a hostile takeover here. And we started with the premise that we didn't buy the notion that if you had if you were a six foot tall, six foot three tall blonde-haired, blue-eyed, gorgeous man with wings, and you walk through the center of Times Square, that people would hate you. Yes. We figured they would love you, they would want to be you, um, and some of them would want you to endorse their products. And we it all started there. Yeah, and if people haven't read what you're talking about, X-Force and then Ecstatics, it was called. It's one of the greatest comic book runs of my lifetime. I loved it. Thank you. Um, what would you... Uh, you've mentioned some of the successes of that era. How else would you characterize that era? Because you really were... You were coming to a company that was 40 years old at that point, but in many ways, you were starting it from the ground up. It was all about accessibility and taking chances. I think that what Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada and, and, uh, instilled in us, and I, I agreed from the, the, you know, the ground floor, was that we had, to, we had to make up our own rules. Mm-hmm. That there were a lot of people that told you that there were certain rules you needed to follow, and we need to question those rules at every turn. And I know that for me, one of the reasons that um, I found Marvel appealing was that 
I had a, a somewhat dispassionate view um, of the of the catalog. Uh, passionate insofar as I loved the characters. Mm-hmm. And the Marvel catalog rolls very deep for me. Some of my favorite characters are characters you've barely heard of. But the London you, you, you got to name one. You can't. Well, just well say I mean, let's start with Black Panther. How yeah. many people knew who Black Panther was? Yeah. Until the movie announcement. That's you right. follow me? Um, you could say the same of Iron Man, actually, even before that. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about you know characters like Shang Chi, Master of Kung Fu, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, all of whom have yeah. had remarkable turnarounds in the exactly. last five, ten years. Absolutely. Uh, you know. You know. Again, I I love the characters. But I, I I don't treat them like sacred cows. Right. Where where you can't do this story because someone a decade ago did a story that touched upon somewhat similar themes. You follow me? I think that um, at that period, I think we recognized that we were allowing ourselves to be painted into a corner by previous stories. Yes. And that was a bad thing. And so we determined to change that. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out the difference in uh, workspace that you that you inhabited at that point because at Vertigo and Vertigo was a branch of DC that was dedicated to telling very forward thinking standalone very creative very adult stories so we're talking Sandman 100 Bullets um, you mentioned Peter Milligan I think Shade Changing Man was in Vertigo as well Preacher uh, yeah. and Preacher mm-hmm. which is you know about to be an AMC TV show um, to go from that place which was encouraging forward thinking innovation to Marvel which you know to many people's minds probably even to some people who worked there was more about stewardship you had this legacy to carry so you had to drag it around with you everywhere you went that's a complete mind change yes and no very good point but i'd say it was a combination of the two we were both encouraged and continue to encourage people to look into the future Mm -hmm. um but also to do so knowing that you have a responsibility there are there are um innate truths to each character yes you know i I, i'll I'll, let's take a look at the hulk for a minute Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the Hulk is a character who there are certain lines you can't cross. However absurd, when the Hulk picks up a tank and throws it 100 yards and it crashes, those soldiers had better get out of that tank battered and bruised. Yes. Because if they don't, if they're dead, everything changes. Mm-hmm. At that point, you enter into an existential zone that is very hard to, 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 to bounce out of. At that point, Bruce Banner, or in this case, the new Hulk, Amadeus Cho, I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute, they'll carry the weight of that on their soul, and they'll be responsible. So there's lines you can't cross. You have to to respect who they are and not change that. But by the same token, you can't be afraid to look at the world in its complexity. If you're going to do a Captain America story, if you're going to do a story in which there's a guy dressed in red, white, and blue, you had better have something to say about the United States and its identity mm-hmm. and its place in the world right now, or you shouldn't pick up your pen. I'm still hung up on the idea of the existential zone as a place Reed Richards goes to when he's not in the negative zone. I the, should add that. There's yeah. another yeah. Yeah. A doorway yeah. to that place, go. and it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a doorway to a very dark, dark place. Um, so I, obviously the, the, the movies started to become a thing during this decade, the first decade of the century. And, it, and I, I do want to touch on that briefly. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I've always been very interested in was how you went from that Wild West period, as you described it, to what came to what, what I came to see anyway from the outside as a remarkably smooth running creative machine. Now, machine has negative connotations. and I don't mean it that way because we went from. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's throw this against the wall and see what sticks and empowering these pretty out there creators to within a few years, probably within three or four years, you started having maybe you'd always had these, but I didn't know about them. um, Creative retreats where, you know, some of your best and brightest writers would go off site somewhere, work together, collaborate, dream big and basically plot out 
the universe for another year. And in that, it was remarkably similar to, I think, the way a TV writer's room works at the beginning of a season. Very much so, yeah. And that was pretty remarkable because it seemed like a, a very smart professionalization of what had been the Wild Wild West. Well, you raise a good point. I mean, the first few years were about building the car and shining up the car. And then once we had the car, we had to figure out how to keep it looking good and driving, running right. efficiently. Um, and you are right. Uh, in During the Gemis years, the, the early days when Joe Casado was there in chief, um, our, our, our editorial meetings tended to be more... Um, groups would spontaneously form and discuss subjects as opposed mm-hmm. to everyone convening on a specific date. I believe it was my new boss, Dan Buckley, uh, you know, the publisher, my new publisher, who is not my new, he's been a publisher for a while now, but who started to, the, the, the who implemented the retreats and, um, and they're, they're amazing. I mean, you know, you used the word machine before and, you know, I, I don't even take offense at it. The, the, what's great about them is it's imagine, uh, imagine 30 to 40 editors and writers convening in a no, in a, uh, a no frills, um, conference room, uh, with catered food for three to four days to just walk through all of the writers and editors plans for each story and see uh how those roads intersect and what car crashes might happen and and um and talk it through and what's fascinating about it is that there's a lot of arguing um anybody that brings an idea as we as we put it runs a gauntlet mm-hmm. um and there's out full disclosure there's never a point at which during the course of retreat, I won't want to launch myself across the table and strangle someone. But we always come at the other side, uh, shaking hands and going off for dinner and drinks and loving what we've got. The process just works. I've never been in a TV writer's room. Um, and I, quite frankly, I'm envious because at least in a TV writer's room, you're focusing on one story. Right. Not We're focusing all on 30. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's a remarkable process that I've, uh, every year I, I, it, I gain more faith and respect for it, in it. What is your favorite or, or a few of your favorite memories from the early ones? Because, uh, you know, you had a certain cast of characters in those rooms. That's evolved over the years. There's some constants and some writers have moved in, some writers have moved out. Is there one particular example you can think of in those years? I guess we're talking like 03 or 04, where you remember someone, whether it was, it was Brian Bendis or someone else, saying something that changed the direction of the company in a way that was shocking to you in the moment and is resonant for you now? There's a lot of them, but I don't think anything was quite as seismic as the retreat out of which Civil War came. That's what I was actually going to guess, yeah. Yeah, we we went in to discuss um, an event uh, called World War Hulk, and we had about a day's worth of traction on it, and we knew we had a wonderful story, um, but it hadn't quite come into focus, and we were stalling out. And I don't exactly remember how we pivoted, but there was a point at which I believe it was Mark Miller planted a seed and we started to pour water on it to keep the metaphor alive. Mm-hmm. And next thing we knew, we were landing in a really good place. And what was fascinating about it as well is everybody came at it from a different angle. Um, you know, Jeff Loeb, um, who's, who's running our TV department mm-hmm. right now, um, is has a remarkable sense of Marvel history and just there's no one better at the spectacle of Marvel Comics. And I, on the other hand, am one of the worst at that. But I, I've got a real eye uh, towards seeing the metaphor to real life. And to see how everybody in the room contributed and how we ended up with a story that we knew was rooted in a real concern of the day. You know, if, if you've not read Civil War, it was our statement on the post-9-11 world. Um, this was an era when 
Um, the the wounds of, of of the World Trade Center bombing were still fresh. Um, we were on continual orange and red alert here in New York City. And one of the most pressing questions was exactly how much of your freedom were you willing to give up for more security and indeed whose freedom mm -hmm. are you willing to give up? And we managed to tackle that question um, through the vocabulary of people in tights punching one another. <laughs> Which is a remarkable <laughs> twist, yeah. Um, the the one thing that Civil War certainly led to in Marvel is, you know, once you do it once, you kind of have to top it. And there have been a number of events since then, um, some that were received very well, some less well. Sure. Um, do you, How do you internally talk about the, the, I don't know what to call it, the the rhythm or the language of events. I mean, because it does, it has come to sort of define the comic industry over the last 10 years. Um, fans certainly like it and creators certainly seem to get jazzed by it. But do you find yourselves struggling to come up with ways to top the previous one? Do you miss the Wild Wild West days well, ever? Well, I'll stop you right there. We never go in trying to top of course, that would the be previous one. And you know that already. Uh, hell is paid with good intentions. There's no way you can go in and come out the other side topping. What you go in is trying to be honest and tell a good story. And part of that honesty is realizing when you really have nothing and you need to leave the room. Uh, we have, you know, like I mentioned with the World War Hulk story, we eventually got back to that story mm -hmm. and we turned into something that we're very proud of. Part of it is the reason we didn't force it. We weren't feeling it at the time, so we didn't force ourselves to mm -hmm. feel it. Um, but again, what it comes down to is just trusting the room taking a look at the zeitgeist and not going in saying, let's try and do something that taps into the zeitgeist the way Civil War did. just doesn't work that way. It has mm -hmm. to come more naturally. Um, that said, spoiler alert, I feel that we've been talking for a while about a story that has, let's just say, a lot of meat on its bones, a lot of meat on its bones, that really speaks to the world right now, to the zeitgeist of the day, uh, something that we think everyone will relate to um, that, that, that reads a comic book, that, that watches TV, that has a, an iPhone or a BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. And um, we're slowly whittling that down and being a story that we think we're going to be very proud of. I can't give you an estimated date for it because we're not forcing it. But, but again, it's something that we're being patient with. It's the new Howard the Duck. Exactly. Right? I figured. Exactly. Once you said zeitgeist, I knew where you were going <laughs> with it. Um, one other shift that happened over these years, and I think it, it began with the Quesada era in general, and I think that's actually worth noting because Joe Quesada has written comics, but he was primarily an artist. That's how I first encountered his work years and years ago. Yeah. Um, it did seem to be a necessary shift back towards empowering the writers, uh, at least in the first part of the century. Not that the artists are less important. It's Absolutely. a visual medium. But, you know, for people who are comics fans in the 90s like I was, you know, and the artists took over and eventually took off and started Image Comics and people would buy literally anything that these guys drew, even if the content was, mm -hmm. and I'll say it, you don't have to say it, was lacking. Um, empowering writers as superstars, and I say this not just because mm -hmm. I'm a writer, seemed like a very, very smart uh, corrective to that era and led you in a lot of good places. I think so. It's the blueprint. It's the foundation upon which things are built. Um, if you take a look at a, um, an amazing TV series like, say, Breaking Bad, it started with the scripts. Yeah. The fact that the the director did their job, the fact that the actors were amazing, the fact that the cinematographer brought a, a unique look to the series were all contributing factors to the success of that series. Mm -hmm. But the core reason was that the story worked, mm -hmm. that the showrunner and those writers 
work through every detail of that story to make to make it stick and to stick the landing. And I think that, you know, obviously we do a high volume of comics. As editor-in-chief, I won't, I won't front. I won't lie and say everything we do is the best. But we try. Mm-hmm. And we, we produce, you know, some, you know, 60 to 70 books per month. Uh, so um, there's a high volume of content that we do there. Uh, fans want it. Um, and we, we do our best. That's, that's, that's what we try and do. Um, going back just one more moment about event storytelling obviously we're we're talking here in september and uh secret wars which may be the may actually be the biggest event you guys have done is is unfolding right now and i wanted to talk to you about that specifically and trace it a little bit because mm-hmm. um one of the writers that you know wasn't a part of marvel comics 10 years ago and then slowly started to do more and more and become central to your your operation was jonathan hickman and um so he, I believe his first major book for you guys out of the Ultimate Universe was Fantastic Four. He did a Correct. really remarkable run Correct. in Fantastic yeah. Four. What I'd like to know is just from your perspective, inside baseball, mm-hmm. how and when do you identify this guy's talents? And how and when do you start having the conversations that eventually lead to empowering him to take over your flagship book, more or less the Avengers, radically change it and push it over a two or three year period towards something that is going to break and ultimately kill your universe. I mean, that is, it starts in one small place and then it it blows out into this amazing thing. What was that journey? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're using Jonathan's example, you, first of all, you identify a voice, talent, somebody who has a perspective, a point of view, something to say. Mm -hmm. Then what you try and do, and this comes in conversation as much as anything is find out where their interests lie, what characters they like, um, in short, you try and put them in a position to succeed. Um, you try and marry them to a character that they have the best chance of succeeding with. Um, and then you see how that develops. And as you start seeing their writing develop, you see where their strengths are. For Jonathan, it was the mind-bending science fiction that um, hard, hardly any of us could keep up with in Fantastic Four, coupled with the intimacy of the family, the fact that he nailed the the nuances of the family um, that gave us more and more faith in his mm-hmm. in his skills. Um, and it was early conversations he was having with larger metaphysical, theoretical, theoretical universe-bending stuff that he had with Tom Brevoort that was brought to my attention, um, that ultimately was brought to my boss's attention because we were so excited about it that we realized could have universe-spanning, you know, Multi- ramifications. Multiverse-spanning. You, you are right about Secret Wars... Um, being the biggest event we've done in one regard. Um, and and just objectively, no event has done more to transform the Marvel Universe moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, that's not a qualitative statement. I you know Flip a coin to decide which is better, Civil War or Secret Wars. What I'd say is that Secret Wars bends the Marvel Universe and reshapes it in ways readers are about to find out mm-hmm. soon. Um, but it started with the, a few ideas he had that we... We had a lot of confidence in that we we watched grow over months. Uh, part of the public record that we discussed Secret Wars at at least four to five retreats, shaping it uh, before we put it on a calendar, um, uh, uh, maybe two or three before we ratified it, and and two more before we put it on the calendar. And here we are. Does the but just the, the the germ of the idea that we are going to break the universe and start it over again. Does that come from Jonathan? Or does that come from an idea that had been that had been kicking around in retreats and, and in editorial minds, and then the two of you met on that? To point? be honest, I don't know. I know that the idea of the incursions and universes colliding and reshaping 
came from him. Right. Uh, who it was, or indeed if it was one person that came up with the idea of changing the Marvel Universe to the degree that it has, I don't know. These are, uh, one of the, the qualities of the retreats is that you almost don't know who takes authorship of, of something right. because there's so much input. But ultimately what it comes down to is one writer owns it. They're the one that says, I have the faith in this story. I want to write it. They step forward, chest out, and take it. Secret Wars is a little bit different because it started with Jonathan. So it was more a matter of whether or not he felt he could actually pull this off because it's very ambitious, as you've seen. Right. Um, actually, in, in the way you phrase that is interesting. It leads to a question I have, um, which is about who owns it. And, of course, that's always been the issue with creator-owned versus working for mm-hmm. the, you know, people call them the big two. Um, one thing that I think you, you guys have done very well, um, it seems, over the last few years is you identify young and emerging talent. You give them an amazing platform to do some wildly creative work and participate in building the universe. And then it seems, you know, many of them reach a point where they've, okay, I'm time. I'm going to take my ball and see what I can do with it for a while. Mm-hmm. And they graduate. Maybe they come back. Maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, one example of that is Matt Fraction, who I think mm-hmm. just did incredible work for you guys. His Hawkeye series, mm-hmm. I talk about in this podcast often. That got me back into comics again after another hiatus. It was just tremendous. And I think it's to your credit that you guys allowed him to do that separate and apart from you know, yeah. the larger universe because he had such a story to tell. I guess the question is, do you feel confident that that model can sustain itself? Is there a next generation of Hickmans and Fractions, you know, just as they were the next generation of Bendis' and Millers? Absolutely. With all due respect to all of these creators who we love and we miss, um, yes, we're, we're, we're always have, we always have our eye on new talent. Mm-hmm. We're always identifying new talent. Um, it comes from strange places. It comes from the indie world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as you know from the today's New York Times, it comes from other places as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've constantly got an eye out for that. I'm very excited about a new crop of writers, some announced and some yet unannounced, on our our new launches right now. Um, you know, comic books stay relevant because we find people who look at the world in different ways, mm-hmm. who bring different love and different messages. Uh, to these characters. Um, So Marvel Comics will be around long past me, Joe, Jonathan, anybody who's in the building right now. Mm -hmm. Um, These characters resonate because there's just something supremely cool that transcends time about each of them. And obviously at this particular moment, they aren't just cool to people who have discovered them. They are you know, dominant language of the world at the moment, which is an incredible thing, I'm sure, for both of us, for Absolutely. our generation to see. Uh, the one time that, that we spoke was, you know, 15 years ago, for 13 years ago for the Spider-Man movie when I was writing for Spin. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, that's just, what is, they can't make a Spider-Man movie. Sure. Why would they do that? They'll lose money. They won't get it right. Who would want to see that? And now look at the world we live in. I mean, I, I feel like we can't even hammer that point home enough to people who are of, no, you know, the, younger than us how odd this all seemed Everything just 10 years ago. changed. I mean, we now live in a world where everyone knows who Iron Man is, mm-hmm. Thor, the Black Widow, Nick Fury. We live in a world where people know who Guardians of the Galaxy are, exactly. which is insane. Oh, and everybody was lining up to say the Guardians was a misstep. It mm-hmm. was destined for failure. And meanwhile, you know, anybody that had read the script and seen any of the royal footage like myself was saying, you know, buy, buy Rocket Raccoon stock right now because yeah. <laughs> that character is going to be a breakout character. Um, no, absolutely. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a transformed world right now. I know as a, as a preteen, 
I gave up comics because they were they were such a nerdy thing and I was a bit of a jock and I found it hard to reconcile those two parts of myself so mm-hmm. to my utter shame I gave up comics and didn't rediscover them till college mm-hmm. now there's no need to do that now everybody yeah. knows who these characters are and they're recognized as being modern mythology whether you're a kid or an adult you know there's a Marvel character for you one thing that I've been really interested to watch um, evolve has been the role of the comic company um, in the age of the movies now um, obviously your focus is on these books and you don't mm-hmm. work on the movies but um, when the first round of movies came out, when the first X-Men movie, the first Spider-Man movie came out, even up to, I think, when Marvel started making movies sure. for themselves with Iron Man, it did seem like there was a um, corporate initiative or company-wide initiative to present a comic book, have the comic books be ready to match the movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can debate over how heavy-handed that was. Sure. but. But you wanted to make the match. You wanted to say the people coming out of the movies can say, okay, well, here's a comic book, and Tony Stark looks like Robert Downey Jr. a little bit, and his world is more or less the same. Um, one thing that I've really enjoyed over the last the second half of the comic book movie era is it seems to me, and you can correct all of this if I'm wrong, is that that maybe wasn't the best strategy because the old books exist. You can put a trade paperback on a spinner rack by the movie theater. In fact, what the comic book company has become, and this is truly exciting to me, is like the world's coolest R&D department where the best and wildest ideas, the ones that they could never do in a movie, at least for a first movie, get test road tested and tried out and get to have fun. And then slowly the very best of those ideas migrate up, which seems to me the way it always should have been done. Like I tell everyone, um, I root for the success of the Marvel movies as much as anyone. But my job security has nothing to do with their success. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job and my staff's job security is rooted in our ability to do our jobs and have fun. And we are we are paid to tell the next stories. Right. Uh, we are, tell, as you put it, low-cost R&D. Uh, we are paid to tell the next stories, to bend things, occasionally break them. I mean, you know right now that the Marvel Universe looks very different. Uh, you know, Thor is a woman. Uh, Captain America is African-American. He's Sam Wilson, you know, as the Falcon. Wolverine is a woman. There's two Spider-Men out there. Um, one of them is Miles Morales, who's Hispanic and Latino. And uh, very recently, we announced that the strongest character in the Marvel Universe, with all due respect to Thor, the strongest character in the Marvel Universe is now uh, a 19-year-old Korean-American guy named Amadeus Cho, who is the totally awesome Hulk. And this, it, was there a moment when the conversation shifted, when you realized that this is the best work that you can do, that you don't have to be jerked in line with the movies, that the best thing you can do is push stories as far as they can go? It wasn't an explicit conversation, no. Um, you know, we, we communicate, Marvel West, the studios and TV and Marvel East Publishing, mm-hmm. we communicate. We There's a free flow of information. Um, I will always, as a matter of protocol... Let people know what we're planning. Hey, we're planning this. Um, I've yet to have anyone reach out and shout and say, don't do this. This is wrong. Uh, you know, we, we, we have fun. We, we, are, we are free to do what we need to do. It's worth noting that, um, as we said at the beginning, these characters, many of them are 50 years old. Um, yet the best stories for the best movies have come from storylines from the last 15 years. Uh, 
I'm a big fan of Captain America Winter Soldier. Sure. That's um, Ed Brubaker's storyline from the first, you know, from 10 years ago or so. Yep. Guardians of the Galaxy that, you know, I was reading Jim Valentino's Guardians of the Galaxy in the 90s, which sure. is a very different team. This was this is a team that is, what, 15 years old, 10 years yeah, old? Yeah, very much so. Um, Civil War, the storyline we've been talking about, mm-hmm. will be the next Captain America movie. You've given the people in Hollywood incredibly rich source material only in the last few years, which I think is underappreciated. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, <'cause laughs> there's like, no other we, response. We, we like to think so. I mean, again, I think that what the tremendous success of Marvel Studios owes, I think, to their ability to take decades worth of stories and figure out how to boil that down mm-hmm. into one two-hour movie that anyone can access um that they would take cues from anything we've done in the last 15 years is of course very exciting mm-hmm. um you know but even there you'll see that they'll 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 tweak and change and make it their own uh, and I think that's great. The thing that I think the movies have done so well is actually something that you said you specifically look for in your writers. So it's the same, essentially, which is you, these characters existed for this long because they can be boiled down to a very simple idea. And if you hold it on to that idea and protect it, you can put them into almost any circumstance. Absolutely. Um, and uh, they're also different genres. Yes. People have a tendency to want to say that superhero is a genre, and I don't think so. I think it's a medium if you take a look at it Iron Man is a science fiction movie. Captain America is a espionage movie. Um, Hulk is a monster movie. Um, Avengers, eh, it's more of a straightforward superhero movie. Guardians of the Galaxy, space comedy, adventure. science fiction, yeah. space adventure. And I think that that's a very important thing to to to, to keep in mind when you're when you're doing whether it's a comic book or a movie. Right, and going forward, you know, we see that they hired a horror director to do Doctor Strange, which again that makes sense. Exactly. Um, let's. Uh, Oh, one last thing about the movies. There, I was curious about this. For a time, there was a creative committee that was based in the publishing arm that was advising on scripts, and I read recently that that was disbanded. Is that accurate? Can you comment on that? I don't all? know. It's actually not. I, w- I was not on the creative committee. Right. Um, I am absolutely certain that there's going to have to be the same level of dialogue right. um, between companies, but it's it's not something I know. Let's talk about the, the, the changes in characters that you mentioned. Um Take Thor, for example. The current Thor in the comic books is a woman. Um, the writer who's been working on it, a guy named Jason Aaron, has been writing the character back when he was the Thor we all remember. The Thor we all remember mm-hmm. is still there, mm-hmm. kind of having a exist- – he's in the existential zone, having exactly. a bit of a crisis. Exactly. Uh, never been a big Thor fan. Uh, I've been reading this comic. I think it's terrific. I think it's exciting. It's fun. It's emotional. And it's a very fresh story. And that's pretty much all you can ask for in a comic Well, book. it's outperforming the previous Thor. And right. it's the same writer. I mean... And, well, the art is really exceptional, too. We absolutely, that. absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, this is an instance where it was a writer-driven idea. Jason mm-hmm. had an idea for a story. He thought it would be interesting to give the hammer to another person, and in this case, a female. And... Um, and uh, he sold us on it uh, in the same light. Rick Remender, who was writing Captain America at the time, had an idea that would incapacitate Steve Rogers and necessitate the shield going to someone else's hands. And who better equipped than than his buddy, the Falcon? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very recently we were discussing the Hulk at a, a retreat. And we're thinking post-Secret Wars. We're swinging for the fences here. What can we do to freshen the Hulk? And I pretty much said, look, you know, as a former Hulk editor and having seen what we've done in, in the recent in recent runs, however good they are, I'm tired of Banner right now. I'm tired of 
another story about Banner wrestling with the weight of being the Hulk. The story of Jekyll and Hyde was a short story, I believe, the original. Exactly. It's not a 50-year-old story. And and uh, make no mistake, um, there there are Banner stories to be told, and Banner's story does not end in the Totally Awesome Hulk. There's a fascinating story for him to be told um, about him uh, once he no longer has the power of the Hulk. But the new Hulk is Amadeus Cho, and it made sense. I think mm-hmm. it was editor Mark Panicia who, when he heard my concern about going back to the well with Banner, said, well, what about Amadeus Cho? And, uh, and he I had been a popular character. Exactly, a popular character. If you don't know him, he's a 19-year-old Korean-American kid uh, who's uh, uh, rated as maybe the fifth or sixth smartest guy in the world, although he would argue he's higher, he's underranked. Um, like any 19-year-old kid, he's cocky. Um, and uh, full disclosure, my wife is Korean, so I was deeply influenced to go this route, and I've scored major points with her, my omni, with my mother, and my, my brothers. Um, but, you know, it's fascinating because you have a, a seamless fit and, and a, a new story to tell. This, uh, when Banner inherited the, the power of the Hulk, he was a, he was a, a bit of a sad sack adult. Mm-hmm. He'd already lived and had been taken down a peg or two. His experience was very different. Amadeus is going to carry this weight like it's a feather. Mm-hmm. He's going to love it. It's like he's being given the, the keys to a Maserati, and he intends to drive it and drive it fast. A green Maserati. A green Maserati, um, yes. I want to ask you about the sort of the myth, the mythical new fan. And I, mm-hmm. I, I was sort of a, alluding to that when I talked about, you know, the people walking out of Iron Man saying, I want to read comic books now. I want to read more Iron Man stories. Um, what do you, who do you think is the new fan now? What is the new fan Marvel is chasing? Because obviously the, one of the tricks of your job is you, you don't want to offend people who have read the books for a long time and have their visions of characters and the things that they've become familiar with. But from a slightly outsider perspective a lot of the moves you've been making are exciting. It's, it's, a, it's fresh air. These are old stories, and now all of a sudden they feel new again. And I find that, I feel like that would be appealing to a whole new generation. Mm-hmm. So when you have these conversations editorially and even you know, in terms of the business, who is the new fan? Where, where well, the, are they? The new fan comes from a lot of different places. And the new fan is both male and female. Mm-hmm. Um, the new fan comes in all sizes, shapes, creeds, and colors. I mean, think one of the biggest areas of of growth in in comics has been the the rise of female readership. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that with the emergence of geek culture in all its forms, you know what I'm talking about, uh, women have found more entry points into the world of comics and into the Marvel mythology. You know, contributing factors to this are the movies, the TV shows, cartoons, animation, and just the fact that right now, even if you aren't a Thor fan, it's not that uncool to walk around wearing a Thor shirt. Yeah, I would also say the movies have thrown open the doors and windows on the musty comic book shops. Absolutely. Maybe made them a little bit less intimidating to people who you know who maybe don't look like us or Without wore, wore the clothes we did in high school. Without a doubt. Although you said you were a jock, so maybe. maybe, uh, not. maybe. Only, only one sport jock in basketball. Okay, but maybe right. middle yeah. school, I'll yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah. Um, also, I would probably point to the rise in digital comics. I mean, I'm, I'm back in because I think your Unlimited app... Um, it's been terrific because now I don't have to keep up. I don't have to buy things and fill up my New York apartment. I have the library at my fingertips. And I would imagine for fans who might be intimidated from, I hope they're not intimidated in comic book stores and conventions, but if they absolutely. were, they can just get it, it themselves. Absolutely. We call it the new newsstand and it's, it allows for the impulse buy. And uh, it's a huge area of growth for us. Um, it allows books like Ms. Marvel, the new Ms. Marvel, yeah. Kamala Khan, 16-year-old Pakistani girl from New Jersey, who gets national press when she's announced, 
uh, to become an impulse buy for anybody that happened to read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal that day mm-hmm. and is a little bit curious. So it's been a, an incredible um, way to um, get new readers um, uh, interested and and a, a very easy way to get comic books into people's hands. I think you've done a, uh, an admirable job of diversifying the line across the board, both in terms of the style of books and the, the makeup of the characters in the books. Um, I would imagine you would agree with me that one thing that's been a, a struggle or at least an effort on your on your behalf is making sure that the creators are as diverse as the characters because traditionally the people who made comic books were more or less often white men. Obviously Absolutely. there are many, many talented and wonderful mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, outliers who, who were not white men. But, you know, the, even Jason Aaron and Rick Remender, who you mentioned, who mm-hmm. did great work, they're both white men themselves. You had some big news today that I know you want to talk about. Um, and you mentioned the Totally Awesome Hulk book is being uh, written and illustrated by Korean-American writer and artist. How has that process been in terms of recruiting the talent, finding the talent, putting them in the positions to succeed? Uh, well, it takes time, as you put it very well. Um, comic books were long the hobby of white guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I myself, I'm I'm Hispanic, I'm Mexican-American. I never dreamed for a minute I would be working in comics. Um, never thought there would be a career there. And, and yet here I am through circumstance. Um, and I, I bring, like my editors, I have a very racially diverse staff. Um, I bring my experience, my interests, the food I ate when I grew up, the art I looked at, the music I listened to. All of that influences my tastes and my decisions and the types of books I do. And uh, as, as it does with any editor. And as our editorial staff has become increasingly diverse and we've gotten infusion of new, new blood and new mm-hmm. ideas and new talent... It's influenced the line. You know, you take a look at Sana Amanat, the editor who spearheaded Ms. Marvel, um, one of our breakout books. You know, her her contribution and being at the forefront not only of of finding opportunities for female writers and artists at Marvel, um, but diversifying along along other lines. You know, can't be underestimated. Um, I think that it really just came down to us. You know, course correcting. There was many years ago. Uh, we were canceling a book called X-23, mm-hmm. the female Wolverine book, due to diminishing sales. And I pointed out, do you realize now that this leaves us without a single title that's anchored by a female character? And we had a, we realized this was a problem, and we spoke about it. And we got to work. And now we're in a position where I, I, I'm told that we have 16 books either um, – we have 16 books in production – or development featuring female leads. And we have so many female writers and artists, I've lost count at this point. But the, uh, the, the victory more, is when you don't have to more count. more on the way. I mean, that's... Exactly, exactly. You know, you point to today's news, you know, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, an amazing writer, correspondent for The Atlantic, um, uh, outspoken, um, let's say, activist on... on the most pressing social issues of the day. But an even more outspoken activist on Marvel issues of the day. <laughs> and hardcore Marvel geek yeah. uh, is going to be writing Black Panther. And Is he going to get Monica Rambeau in that book? Because that's his other I, obsession. I think what you Captain should do Marvel. is ask him on Twitter because I believe he's answering a lot of questions He's going today. nuts today and yesterday I've about it. This I've is big news it. for him. I've seen it. Um, let's, uh, we should wrap up in a moment, but so all new, all Marvel is what is all new, all different Marvel is coming is what's coming out of Secret Wars. Um, 
It is essentially, people have called it a reboot of the universe and of the line. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's ex- accurate in how you phrase it. How, how do you internally discuss it? What I say, Secret Wars, the event, is going to transform the Marvel Universe, but it's going to look a lot like the Marvel Universe you know, but there's going to be some new changes. Imagine like a pizza. Some of the toppings that were there are uh-huh. gone, and there's new toppings. And they're delicious. So, exactly. They're <laughs> delicious. Some of them not so delicious. But in a good way. Some of them are spicy. Exactly. Exactly. And and some of them are going to be pieces you recognize. Some of them are going to be mystery meat. Mm-hmm. And we're having a lot of fun with that. And uh, it's it's an opportunity for every new title to start with a new number one, start a new story arc. Every writer is going to be starting eight months after the conclusion of Secret Wars. And something significant will have happened mm-hmm. in the life of that character. Something that um, something big or or small. Um, in scale, but that that changes their world, and um, and and the goal is to have accessible, fun, sharp stories coming right out the gate. One thing that that is obvious right from from jump is that you're continuing something that I think has been very successful for you guys, which is mining what you already have. Like um, Captain Marvel, the character Carol Danvers, she's going to be a movie in a few years. She's become very prominent and very well handled in a lot of great books, essential to Avengers and other books like that. I remember when that character, I believe, was just living inside of Rogue's mind in Spider-Man. In Absolutely. X-Men. Like, yeah. th- these are undervalued assets. These were there. You know, you've made Squirrel Girl into a thing, which... Howard the Duck outperformed a lot of books I mean, out there. And you yeah, had this stuff in your back pocket. Now, you, I believe Devil Dinosaur is getting a book. So how much of, how much of this relaunch or, or initiative was about um, creating something that is actually all new versus just taking advantage of things that you maybe had lying around both i mean for us it was about seizing the opportunity to have some fun and take some chances and uh i think what's interesting about this era now is when i look at the success of howard the duck or i look at the success of squirrel girl um if we can do those we can do anything (laughs) i look at the first sketches for moon girl and devil dinosaur uh particularly moon girl where they're blowout comb afro and back and her, her her thick glasses and her backpack and I, I'm in love already. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's a testament to the changing market and to my corporate overlords <laughs> that they're giving us the flexibility to do this kind of thing. You know, a lot of people will look at Marvel and they'll see that big thing scroll before the movie and they'll think we're this big corporation. We're not, we're a mom and pop shop. We're 18 to 20 editors, including me, putting out these books, complemented by production staff. And uh, we have much more in common with, um, you know, uh, a family sitting around a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, extended family sitting around for Thanksgiving dinner than, uh, you know, what a lot of people picture when they when they see Marvel. Um, I want to ask about. There, there have been a lot of stories about how, um, because you know they're not properties owned by Marvel, that Fantastic Four and the X Men have become less priorities for the company. Um, I would argue that that Reed Richards and Doctor Doom were the central figures in the biggest thing that you've done in years in Secret Wars. I mean, they were they defined it. That struggle to find everything, and Hickman is obviously a huge fan of them and wrote them incredibly well. So I don't know if I totally buy that argument. I would say um, it's been interesting to watch, even from the sidelines, the slight. I would say slight, I don't want to say diminishment of the X-Men, but the decentralization of the X-Men. Now, Devil's Advocate or even mm-hmm. just, or Devil Dinosaur, let's say, I kind of am for that because I loved the X-Men as an angsty teenager because they speak to mm-hmm. all angsty teenagers. The older I got, the less 
I found those stories less elastic because there's they're they're unhopeful stories. They're dark stories about characters twisted up in their own ever ending time loops of downerness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually appreciated the rise of the you know the Avengers were kind of an afterthought when I was reading comics in the nineties. What is your in, internal editorial policy now? What what role do the X Men play? Are they central? Are they adjacent? How interested are you in them? Bottom line, I have to sell X Men comics to keep my job. Yeah, I, I laugh when I see. A lot of what goes on in the internet, because what you see there is people, opportunistic people who are putting out clickbait because they know they'll get hits. And people love a conspiracy. They like to talk. You know, I loved it when the very same time people were talking about uh, X-Men and us diminishing them, Brian Bendis, the biggest... He's your number one writer, Number one writer took over not only all new X-Men, but Uncanny X-Men. Do you do that? Do you devote your your biggest guns to a title if you want them to go away? You know, right now we've announced our our X Men roster: Jeff Lemire, a rising star, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, Humberto Ramos are doing extraordinary X Men. I I desperately want those books to succeed. Uh, so did it with the Fantastic Four. You know, as you pointed out. Um, Reed and Doom and all those characters, they have a big role. Secret Wars is not over. Yeah. And the ripple effects from Secret Wars are what will affect the Fantastic Four's fate moving right. forward. You, which are things you've not announced. Those, Absolutely. That news hasn't come out yet. There's stuff that's yet to be announced, you know. Um, give me three books. You could do four, but like mm-hmm. from this all new lineup that has been announced, what are you personally excited about? Obviously, you're repping the whole yeah. line, they're all pretty good. But what yeah. are you excited about well, that you want people listening? If people have made it this far, like what are they? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to I'm not going to rep the biggest books that we know right. are already going to succeed. Yeah, you, you have Bendis yeah, launching yeah, Iron yeah. Man. You well, I, you know what? I am going to rep that. I'm going to go out and say I'm really excited about Iron Man. We uh, we were all in with the commitment to make this character as popular and vital on the comic book page as he is to Marvel Studios and as a global character. He's essentially going to be the flagship of the line, yes. which he basically is yes. in terms of character popularity. And our anyway. early early interest in the title, our early numbers, are a very good sign of where we're going. And I trust me, when you read the first issue, you're going to want to come back. So I'm very excited about Iron Man. Um, uh, I love the character. Um, I'm one of the few people who, when Marvel Studios announced that Iron Man would be the first movie and most people were saying... This is crazy. Yikes, I thought yeah. this makes perfect sense mm-hmm. because Iron Man is both a superhero movie and a science fiction movie. And the central character is an adult, a flawed adult, which means he's going to reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to care about him, which all due respect, Spider-Man, that character, he, his youth and naivety, it, it's not going to translate quite as well you yeah. follow me it, it, you'll always find an audience for spider-man but i put my money down on iron man so i'm, I'm really excited yeah. about that as i said before i'm absolutely thrilled about Tanahasi coates and uh brian stelfreeze's black panther it's very exciting they, they have an epic story to tell um about a civil war in wakanda that is going to make the black panther have to reassess everything he stands for and figure out if being who he is can save the day um, I am, for plenty reasons, very excited about the Totally Awesome Hulk by Greg Pak and Frank Cho. Um, my wife is Korean, which makes me half Korean. And I think it's amazing to see, to be able to go out there and say that the strongest character in the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe 
is, is, is an Asian teenager. I think it's fantastic. And I, I guarantee that if you pick up the book, you're going to have fun. On the sleeper list, I'll say, look, the early stuff I've seen for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur is extremely exciting. Again, a much smaller book, um, which we have no expectation will compete with any of the books I've mentioned in terms of sales. But I think it's just a really special book. And Natasha Bustos, the artist, is turning in just stellar work. Finally, um, you've worked in comic books for a long time now. Um, what gets you the most excited now in 2015 about comic books just as an art form? I mean, what can comics do? I know, and I have a strong feelings about it, but in your mind, what what can comics do that, that in a world that movies, you know, there are superheroes in movies, that movies can't, that there are superheroes on TV, that TV can't? What keeps you excited? What gets you up in the morning about this I'm, remi- I'm reminded of this every once in a while where, well, first of all, if Marvel knew how few comics I read, they'd fire me. But on the rare, uh, rare occasion I can actually sit down and read a comic book for enjoyment, I'm reminded about the singular experience of reading a comic book, which is very different from reading a book and, of course, different from watching a movie. Um, I think that there's an intimacy to the comic book experience, the fact that you control the pace of the read, you can absorb images, that, that like with prose, the dialogue, the text is something you process in your mind as opposed to something that hits you off of a, uh, off of a speaker. I think it provides a unique experience uh, that I think is, is here to stay. I, I, I laugh because I feel like there's going to come a time soon I never would have imagined where you won't be at a party and someone will say comic books. They still make those things um, that that day. If that day hasn't already happened, it's coming. That's a great place to end it. Um, Axel, the the first wave of all new, all different Marvel books, just for people out there listening. When did they hit in October? October. So we're, we're heading up on it and you're excited. Absolutely excited. And we'll be releasing books through April at this point. Uh, we've announced many of them, but not all of them. There will be many more announcements um, at uh, New York Comic Con, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Awesome. You want, you want to drop any announcements here? Oh, you'd love me to. I would, I would love it. I thought I would soften you up for an hour. Unfortunately, and then... I can't. But all right. there's some good stuff coming. All right. Next time. Next time. We'll negotiate something. And I hope there will be a next time. Axel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.